0: So we continue on in this sermon series in the book of Proverbs where we're seeking uh, God's wisdom, seeking what it means to live our lives uh, under the wisdom and direction of God, to live our lives the way we were created to live. And so we come today uh, to a series of parables, or I'm sorry, Proverbs, uh, on money. Wisdom for handling our money. And that's a good thing uh, because money, has a way of making fools out of all of us. Even otherwise very, very level headed people, money has a way of making fools of us. In uh, the novel uh, No Country for Old Men by Cormac McCarthy, it was later turned into a book, uh, into a movie by the Cohen brothers, it tells the story of the chaos that comes into one little, tiny West Texas town. And it's all, it all starts, it all gets set in motion by a simple man, a farmer named Llewellyn Moss, who in the wilderness outside of this little Texas town stumbles upon $2 million in cash that's been left there after a drug deal went bad. And so he comes in, he finds uh, the bodies and the carnage, and then he finds this money. And he chooses uh, more money than he'd ever seen in his whole life, and so he chooses after contemplating it for a bit to grab it. The way McCarthy writes uh, this scene, he says this. He says, he sat there looking at the money and then he closed the flap and sat with his head down. His whole life was sitting there in front of him, day after day from dawn till dark until he was dead. All of it cooked down into 40 pounds of paper in a satchel. And so he chooses to take the money and uh, as, as chaos descends on this town and more and more people die, it becomes clear to Moss that eventually it's gonna cost him uh, his, the life of all those that he loves, the, wife, the, the life of his wife, his very own life. But in the end, he just can't let go of the money. It's just so much money that he can't let it go. He can't surrender it. Money makes him foolish and he chooses money over his very life. In Mark chapter 10, we meet a man uh, in a similar situation. All the gospel writers tell us that this man, uh, in fact, he's come to be known to us in tradition as the rich young man, right? In those days, those were three very good things to be, (laughs) to be rich, to be young, and to be a man in that world. You had everything going for you. And on top of that, he was a religious man. He was a spiritually in tune man. And so this rich young man comes up to Jesus And he says, master, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, oh, you know what you have to do. Go and keep the commandments of God. Don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal. Keep the commandments. And this rich young man says, oh, another check in my favor. I've I've done all of these things since I was a young boy. And Jesus says, well, then go. Sell everything you have and give the proceeds to the poor. And Mark tells us that he hung his head and walked away dejected because he had much money. He chose money, his possessions, over the offer of life, over real, abundant, eternal life. Money makes a fool out of us and it made a fool out of him. There are places in our lives Some of them we may be very, very aware of. Some of them we may be blind to. Where each of us is choosing money over life, over faithfulness to God, over life and covenant with him. It makes a fool out of us and we choose money over the offer of life. The hope of Proverbs, the hope that Proverbs holds out to us is there actually is another way. There is a way for the spell of greed and money to break and for us to live a life of joy and freedom and gladness, even in our financial lives, submitted to God. You know, after that rich young man walked away from Jesus, dejected, Jesus says the following to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. What the author of Proverbs talks about, about going from wisdom, I mean, from going from foolishness in regards to our money to wisdom is what Jesus talks about here is entering into the kingdom of God. It's that paradox that's impossible in in and of ourselves. It's impossible left merely to human terms. For people like us, materialistic, consumeristic, greedy people like us, to recognize that our money, that our wealth, that the security that it brings cannot save us and that we need something bigger and more powerful. But with God, this gloriously impossible possibility does offer us freedom from the cycle of the love of money. And so we're gonna look uh, from these uh, Proverbs this morning at how money makes fools out of us how God can offer us wisdom, and then how living with wisdom in this area uh, makes it possible for us to thrive and to flourish as human beings. First, how money has a way of making fools out of us. How does money make us fools? Well, the authors of, of Proverbs tell us that we become foolish in regards to money when we look for money to give us what only God can give us. Right, we know that money is powerful, Right? It, doesn't, it doesn't take long of looking around you to realize that money is power, that money brings the power to bring into your life the things that you think you need. It has the power to bring into your life pleasures, things that you really, really want. It has the, the possibility to bring into your life security, uh, the ability to be, to be stable in the midst of an uncertain world. It has the ability to attract other people to you. Right? If you're wealthy, it, it gives you the chance to win friends and members of the opposite sex. Right, that it's clear that money is power. But we tend to, in our world, treat money not just as powerful, but as all-powerful. We tend to invest money with the, with the ability to bring hope, with the ability to bring transcendence, with the ability to help us ultimately to achieve permanence in our world. Here's the way that one of the Proverbs uh, says it. In Proverbs eighteen eleven. The author writes, a rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. We trust money to bring us security. You know, in a a fallen world, in this world that we live in where we know that we're vulnerable, where we know that we're vulnerable to loss and to hurt, money gives us an illusion of security. Money gives us the illusion of being immune to the impermanence and vulnerability of this world. We think that if I I have enough in my retirement account, it's gonna guarantee my my health and my stability into my old age. If I have enough in my bank account, it's gonna enable me to secure a future for my children. And so we believe that money can give us uh, security. And yet I love the way that this proverb puts it, that yes, a rich man's wealth is like a strong city. It is like a fortress, for him. But it's only illusory. It's an imaginary castle. It's an imaginary fortress. It's like a high wall in his imagination. Because ultimately, money cannot give us the security that we long for. Right. This was the astonishment that many of us had when, when the stock market crash of 2009 happened, when the real estate bubble burst. And things that we thought were secure, things that we thought were, were, were welded down and, and we could count on, all of a sudden it became clear that they weren't all that secure. The equity that we, we had saved so diligently in our homes went away. The retirement accounts that many of us had saved into started to, to dip down. And it became clear that it was always a false security, that it was never a security that could re- really deliver. You can never have good enough insurance to protect you from cancer, right? You can never have enough in your bank account Saved up for college to assure the love of your children and their well being into adulthood. Right? The things that we want most and that we need most, money ultimately cannot purchase for us. It can't bring us the security that we long for because we long for a security that's deeper than just what money can bring. In the first proverb that we read this morning, we see that in that security, we're actually looking for something deeper even than, than material security. Proverbs 11:4 four says, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Ultimately, we, we look to our money to bring us something, not just, not just in terms of financial security, but ultimately we, we trust our money to bring us salvation. Right, and that's what the author of Proverbs is saying that it can't bring. You're, you're, you're loading into your wealth or in the promise that wealth may have. You know that it's entirely possible to have nothing or to have very little and to still live fixated on wealth, fixated on money. And he's saying that ultimately you can't trust your money for salvation, for this transcendent hunger of your life. Eric Fromm, the German psychologist, put it this way. Greed is a bottomless pit which exhausts the person in an endless effort to satisfy the need without ever reaching satisfaction. Right? Your greed, the, the hunger for money, the hunger for wealth is, is bottomless. It can never ultimately be satisfied because we're looking for something that it cannot give. This is why Jesus said to us, you cannot serve both God and money. Right? It's also why he said that the, the, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Right. Notice what he It doesn't say that you can't have money and love God. It doesn't say that you can't want money and love God. It's you cannot love God and love money, right? It's possible to love God and have money. Many of the, the figures in the Bible were very, very rich, right? Abraham, though he was a wanderer in this world, uh, if you tally up the amount uh, of the herds and the, the flocks that he had under his care, he was a rich man. He was something like a, like a chieftain. In his world, he had hundreds of people under his care, hundreds of livestock to his name. He was a wealthy person. King David was the, uh, the most prosperous ruler that Israel had known in his time. And yet was a man after God's own heart. So it's possible to have money and to love God, but it's not possible to love money and to love God. It's not possible to trust money as though it can bring you salvation and security and love God at the same time. Because those claims, the claims of being able to bring you transcendence and security and meaning, those are the the claims that an idol makes. Those are the claims of a a would-be good thing that becomes an ultimate thing, that becomes an idol. And we have to acknowledge that in American society, that this is an idol that many of us serve. Right? It's the blessing and the curse of living in a, in a flourishing economy and one of the most powerful economies in the world. The blessing of it is, is that, that by, by the global standards of the world, most of us are relatively secure, relatively stable. But the underside of that is that it's very, very easy for Americans to believe that our security and our prosperity uh, is ultimate, to believe that it can satisfy us. And that's what the scriptures call an idol. That money becomes not just a good thing, but your God. And when money is your God, you're miserable. Whether you have a little bit of it or a lot of it, it makes us miserable. And so how can, uh, how does the, the author of Proverbs show us that God can give us something more than this idolatrous foolishness that money and the love of money brings into our lives? Well, you know, we've said all along that Proverbs uh, is a part of the wisdom literature of the Bible. It's telling us how to live our lives with wisdom. And to live with wisdom is to live our lives as they're designed by God, as we're created by God. And it's important for us to note that as Christians, we do believe that to live our lives under God means to live all of our lives under his care, right? It's not just that God is concerned with the spiritual part of our lives, and that the other stuff of our lives is ours to do with as we want, right? It's not just that God wants us to go to church on Sundays and learn to pray and learn to read our Bibles, but then it's okay, it's up to us to do what we want with our money and our time and our bodies, our relationships, right? And that's what Proverbs is all about. It's about saying, okay, this is what it looks like to bring all of the different pieces of our lives, not just the spiritual parts, but the physical and practical parts as well under the loving care of God. And that's the way we were created to function. If you remember, God made Adam and Eve and he placed them in a garden. And you can look at Adam and Eve's life and see that they were entrusted with certain things. They were entrusted with relationships, right? They were entrusted with this intimate relationship with God and with the relationship with one another. It says that they were, they were intimately connected to one another without shame. So they were, they were given relationships but they were also given resources, right? Adam and Eve were given the resources of living in God's world and called to cultivate it, called to make good use of it, called to make the garden to flourish, to expand the garden and to cultivate the rest of the world, to live within this world that God had given them and use all the resources that they had so that their relationships could thrive and that the world around them could thrive. But the created order, the way that it was always meant to work, is that the resources were made to serve the relationships, right? If you look at the the commands that God gives us, they're relational at their heart. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourselves, right? Relationships first with God and with your neighbor. And the resources, the stuff, the possessions, the, the, the things of this world, were to use those underneath the relationships to serve them. to to use all of our resources as though they're at God's disposal to spend in his world for his glory and the way that he directs. To treat our resources as though they're not just for ourselves, but they're for our other relationships, for the good of our family and friends and neighbors and communities. But that, that, that it's always meant to be relationships first and then resources. But in sin, what we inevitably do is we flip those things. And we treat it as though the resources are what matters most. That our charge in this world is just to get as many resources for ourselves as we can. To use the resources that we have on ourselves to, to satisfy ourselves with our resources and to neglect the relationships. To say that God doesn't have the right to command our resources. To say that our neighbors have no claim on our resources because they're mine. that the fall is a reversal uh, where we come to treasure the things, the things that God can give us apart from a relationship with the covenant God. Stuff begins to rule our lives over people. If you look at at Proverbs 15, uh, verses 16 and 17, we see the author of Proverbs trying to reorder this to the way it's meant to be. Look at what he says in Proverbs 15, 16, and 17. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Here's what what he's saying. He's saying that it's better to be at at a meal where you are eating a terrible, bitter, awful, not very tasty meal with love around the table than it is to be, to be eating the best barbecued ox you've ever had in your life, to be eating the best meal, but around the table, there's not love, around the table, there's enmity, around the table, there's not trust, right? It's far better to have love, to have a rich and full relational life and few resources than it is to have a boatload of resources and to have your relationships with God and others wilting away under it. There was a fantastic article a couple of years ago in the New York Times by a man named Arthur Brooks. The article was called Love People, Not Pleasure. Love People, Not Pleasure. And he tells the story in this article of a king of 10th century Spain named, and I'm probably not gonna get this right, Abad el-Rahman III. And he kept memoirs and he ruled over a very prosperous time in the life of Spain. And here's what King Rahman says. He says, I have now reigned above 50 years in victory or peace, beloved by my subjects, dreaded by my enemies, and respected by my allies. Riches and honors, power and pleasure have waited on my call, nor does any earthly blessing appear to have been wanting my felicity. So he had it all. He was wealthy, he was popular. He had everything that money could buy. But he goes on to write, I have diligently numbered the days of pure and genuine happiness, which have fallen to my lot, and they amount to 14. So of all these days of wealth and pleasure and satisfaction, he says that there's only, of all those days, there's only been 14 of them where I could say that I was actually happy, where I actually was joyful. And here's how Brooks uh, assesses this. He says that he had a formula as he sleepwalked through life, Love things and use people. It's the worldly snake oil peddled by the culture makers from Hollywood to Madison Avenue. You know in your heart that it's morally disordered and a likely road to misery. You want to be free of the sticky cravings of unhappiness and find a formula for happiness instead. How? Simply invert the formula and render it virtuous. Love people and use things. Here was this incredibly wealthy man using things or using people to get things. And Brooke says, you'll only ever know happiness. You'll ever only ever know financial freedom when you cease and get off the, the treadmill of trying to use people to get more and more stuff. But ultimately, uh, the secret for finding freedom from financial foolishness comes not from uh, simply learning wisdom about how to do it better, it comes as we look to Jesus, right? Jesus was the ultimate ruler who had everything at his disposal, all the resources, not just of a human king, but all of the resources of eternity, all the resources that he enjoyed at his father's right hand from eternity past. He had all of the resources. And yet is the supreme picture of what it looks like to lay down all of the resources for the sake of relationship, He gave not just to the point of sacrifice, but to the point of emptiness. He gave and he gave and he gave, not just his resources, but his very life for the sake of relationship, for the sake of faithfulness to his father, the God who called him and sent him. And for for the sake of you and I, those who he longed to secure for an eternity with his father, that he spent all of his resources for the sake of relationship, the way that Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. He poured himself out so that we in the midst of our poverty, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our despair, what does Paul say? So that we might become rich. Right? The only way that you'll ever have peace in this financial part of your life, the only way you'll ever stop living as a fool with it is when you realize that the only real riches that matter, the only real riches that bring ultimate security, ultimate peace, are the riches that we have not in our bank accounts but in Christ. It's the riches that Christ gives us. If we chase that, if we don't have that, we will continue to look to security in our bank account or in our homes. It's only when we realize that we have all of the security we could ever need. We have a security that can't be shaken or taken from us. We have a security that no stock market crash can rob from us, a security that no dip in our home value can take from us, that the only security that ultimately matters is in Christ. That in Christ we have pleasure, we have joy and delight and all that we could ever chase when we chase after the stuff that money can buy, that all of that is supremely given to us in Jesus. He is where our pleasure is. Proverbs twenty-one seventeen says, whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man, but he who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Right, if we, if we chase after pleasure in this world through the stuff that we can buy, we'll only ever spend our money and end up bankrupt and end up with pleasures that, that, that escape us. Right? We probably, I don't know if you're like me, but I bet we all have friendships. We all have family members. We all have relationships. That we look at these people and it looks like surely they can buy anything they could ever want. Right? We look at them and it looks like they have a life of ease. Maybe they've, they've hit it rich. Maybe they came into money. Maybe they just have a little bit more than we do. But we can look at their lives and we can grow resentful. It can look like, you know what? If I had their money, I would never want for anything. I would have the house I want, I'd have the clothes I want, I'd have the life I want. If only I could have a little bit more, then I could have real and lasting pleasure. But the gospel tells us that this is a mirage. That like a a starving person in the desert, somebody dying of thirst will see a mirage out on the horizon and think, if I could just get there, I'll, 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 I'll taste some water and I'll have sustenance, but then it disappears. It fades away that the only real and ultimate pleasure comes as we learn to find our pleasure, to find our joy in Christ. Augustine put it this way, "'Lord, you have made us for yourself, "'and our hearts are restless "'until they find their rest in thee. "'No other rest will ultimately satisfy us.'" C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, "'God made us. "'He invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, that's British for gasoline. A car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food that our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good to, ask, to keep on asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. He says, God made us in such a way that there is no such thing as happiness apart from God. There is no such thing as satisfaction apart from a relationship with the living God. No amount of money, no amount of spent money on pleasure can satisfy. This is why if you ever watch, one of my favorite things to do, uh, if I'm watching TV and nothing's on, I love documentaries. But if you ever watch like the VH1 behind the musics about the bands that hit it big and they could buy anything they ever wanted, it never ends with, you know what? Then I bought four houses and I could buy all the liquor I could drink and I could buy all the houses and TVs I wanted. Then I was happy ever after, right? I was satisfied living in my nice houses. No, it always ends in bankruptcy. It always ends in emptiness, right? The same thing happens when you watch the, the documentaries of your famous sports stars, right? It never ends with, and then, you know, and then I, I invested in a dozen get-rich-quick get uh, schemes. I'd opened a dozen car washes and I was wealthier than ever before. No, it always ends in emptiness. It always ends in emptiness because there is no pleasure apart from a relationship with God. There is no life to be had there. This is why learning how to delight your soul in God, learning how to find contentment and joy and peace in him isn't something that's just reserved for super Christians. Right, when you think about experiencing joy in your prayer life, when you think about experiencing transcendent life with God, it's easy for us to think, well, you know, that's, that's for monks and mystics. That's for pastors. That's for other people. But if it, is for, if it is, if it remains something that's just for super Christians, then your heart will always go chasing after satisfaction and joy in other places. We have to learn how to find real joyful pleasure in God. This does not come easy for Presbyterians. We do not think easily or often about the kind of ecstatic, joyful, exuberant sides of our faith. We can tend to be a very serious people. But if you read the Psalms, if you read the Psalms, it's clear that the psalmists were experiencing joy in their life with God, exuberance in their life with God. Yes, there were times where the psalmists prayed and God seemed to be nowhere, right? Your experience of God is no guarantee of the presence of God. So there are times, and there will be times in our spiritual lives where God seems distant and he seems absent. But there should also be times in our spiritual life where we feel pleasure in the presence of God, where we feel joy and rest and peace. And the thought of chasing after pleasure and wealth starts to fade away a little bit because the pleasures that we enjoy with him are so much clearer. And if you don't know that, you need to seek it. You need to maybe find somebody that you think might know a little bit about that and ask them about it. Say, teach me to pray. Help me learn to pray. Perhaps the best way to do it is to pray along with the church for the past thousands of years and learn to pray the Psalms. Learn to pray in rhythm with the church. And we've got a prayer book designed to help you do that. To get it, take it home and learn to pray. Pray with your brothers and sisters in the church. Learn to find joy in God. Okay, so that's how God helps us find wisdom. And then very briefly, how wisdom helps us to thrive. I love the passage that we ended with in our readings from Proverbs chapter 30. This is a bold prayer that the author of Proverbs makes. He asks God for two things, Proverbs 30, starting in verse seven. He says, two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. So the first thing he asks is, God, take, take foolishness away from me. Take deceit away from me. Help me live in wisdom. And then here's the second thing. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This That's a bold thing to pray. He's not praying what most of us do, which is God, give me as much money as I possibly can get and I promise I'll give a lot away, right? If you you give me money, if you help me to be successful, if you help me get the job, if you help my account to grow, then God, I promise I'm gonna be generous with it, right? No, here's what he prays for. He prays for just enough. He prays for just enough. He says, God, give me enough, not so much that I become prideful and arrogant and boastful, but not so little that I deny you and walk away. Give me, give me this day my daily bread. Give me what I need to survive and help me to be content with it. Help me to live a life of contentment with what you provide. He knows himself. Right? I think that each of us have I think that God makes each of us and we all have different capacities. Right, I think some people are capable of making a great deal of money without it going to their head and they're able to be incredibly content and incredibly generous with it. They're able to, to figure out what they can live on and to give the rest away. They're able to, to, to live with that kind of money without becoming puffed up or arrogant or prideful. And the, the, this guy's saying, I'm not sure I'm that person. So maybe don't give me that much. But also I know, I know my grumbling heart enough to know that if I don't know where my next meal is gonna come from, if I don't think I'm gonna survive, that I might not, I might cease to follow you. I might, I might not have the faith to cling to you through the midst of that. And so he says, God, you know my heart. You know my capacity. You know what's in me. And so give me my daily bread and then help me to live with simplicity and contentment and joy along the way. All of us uh, in this world that we live in, could use more contentment. We could use learning the secret uh, that this guy has of being so satisfied in God that he can say, God, give me my daily bread. Give me enough. And I ask for no more. So the first way that wisdom helps us thrive here is by teaching us contentment. And then also by teaching us generosity. Proverbs 11, the first passage that we read I love uh, this vision. It says in verse, we read 23 through 28. I'll read 24. He says, one gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and one who waters will himself be watered. The world operates with a mindset that we could call a scarcity mindset. Says there isn't enough in the world for everybody. There isn't enough. There's not enough resources. There's not enough wealth. There's not enough land. And so, what you have to do is get all of it that you can and hold on to it for dear life. The gospel calls us beyond a scarcity mindset to say that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He possesses everything that there is to own in this world. And that He can and does bring all of it in season, He brings it as He wishes. And so we can practice generosity. We don't have to hold on to our stuff with a white knuckled grip. We can give and give freely, believing that God is a God of abundance who can supply our every need. One commentator uh, says of this passage that the generosity described here, and I'll I'll tread delicately because it's an awkward subject to talk about. He says that it's the generosity that we see in nature most fully in a nursing mother. Right that a nursing mother, the more that she nurses, the more that she gives, the more that she produces. When she begins to stop, she begins to stop production. And the generosity that's described here is somebody who, as they give, they find they always have enough. As they give, they find God's provision is enough for them. But when they cling, when they hold on to, when we hoard, we find that even what we have isn't enough. Right, this isn't, this isn't the kind of uh, formulaic thing that says, if I, give, if I give to God, he's gonna give back to me. But it is saying that if I enter into a lifestyle of believing in God's abundance, believing that as I give, there's always more to God, there's always more that he can give, we find that there's always enough. We find that he provides richly for us. We find that we're able to be what the church has always been known as for the past 2,000 years and beyond, is a community of gladness and generosity.